The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On May 25, 1989, the years of harassment endured by 44-year-old Cindy James came to a grim conclusion with her sudden disappearance. Although the Canadian nurse had wanted the terrible ordeal to be over since it began, she could never have imagined it would end the way it did. Join me now as we dive into the case of a tormented woman whose cries for help were never answered. You'll discover how her struggle to be believed only added to her fear of the danger lurking in the shadows. Cynthia Elizabeth Hack was born on June 12th 1944. To Otto and Matilda Hack, Cindy was the eldest of six children, her three brothers, Ken, Roger, and Doug, and her two sisters, Marlene and Melanie. The Hack family lived in Oliver, British Columbia, just across from the U.S. state of Washington. The town of Oliver is referred to as the wine capital of Canada with its sun-drenched rolling hills hosting over 40 wineries. Otto Hack was a military man, and his career as an education officer would eventually span 30 years, including five years with NATO. Matilda Hack was a homemaker and adoring mother. Following high school, Cindy attended nursing school and graduated in 1966, specializing in pediatrics. Soon after, Cindy became the administrator at a preschool in Vancouver known as Blenheim House. There, she worked closely with children. In her late teens, she caught the attention of an older man who worked at the same hospital, Dr. Roy Makepeace, a psychiatrist 18 years her senior and closer in age to Cindy's father. In the late 60s, when Cindy was just 19 years old, her and Dr. Roy married. After 16 years of marriage, the pair separated, later divorcing in 1985. After the couple split, Cindy moved into a great two-bedroom home in Vancouver's East End. Four months later, the harassment began. It started with unsettling phone calls, but over the course of three months, the mystery caller began threatening Cindy's life. From the beginning, 
Cindy was very guarded about what was happening, only confiding in her mother after she pressed her for details. In an interview, Cindy's mother said her daughter told her the voice on the phone calls would change, sometimes whispering, sometimes nothing at all, just silence. She also began receiving bizarre letters, menacing words clipped from magazines paired with dark imagery. The collages included phrases like, Soon, Cindy, and you're dead. While some notes arrived in the mail, others were found on her doorstep or blowing around the windshield of her car. She was terrorized by rocks being thrown through her window, her porch lights being smashed, and her phone line cut. The harassment would go on for days, and then suddenly there would be stretches of inactivity. As you can imagine, all these experiences induced a high level of psychological terror for Cindy. She could never let her guard down and was on alert at all times, never knowing what would happen next. Gradually, Cindy's colleagues watched her transform from a vibrant young woman to a distressed neurotic. Although Cindy alerted Vancouver police every time something happened, after dozens of home visits to investigate, many officers suspected Cindy was looking for attention. The first investigating officer, Pat McBride, had developed a rapport with Cindy, so much so that by the end of October, the two had become romantically involved. Following a break-in, Pat moved in with Cindy for a month as a protective measure. While he was living there, one of the silent calls came in. Unfortunately, the call was too short to trace, but Pat was able to determine the call came from the Richmond area, about 15 kilometers south of Vancouver. Several weeks later, the attacks on Cindy reached a turning point. On the evening of January 27, 1983, Cindy's friend, Agnes Woodcock, arrived for a visit. She knocked on Cindy's front door, but there was no answer. She decided to walk around the house to the back door. There, she found Cindy crouching down, as if she was hiding from someone. Shockingly, she also noticed a black stocking roped around Cindy's neck. After authorities were called in, Cindy gave the details of the attack, at least what she could remember. She said she'd gone into the garage for a box when she heard a knock on the back door. When she opened it, she said she was greeted by a man she didn't recognize. But before she could say or do anything, the man suddenly grabbed her and dragged her into the garage where a second man was waiting. According to Cindy, one of the men slashed her hand with a knife, then tied a stocking around her neck causing her to lose consciousness. Her memory was hazy, but she believed they raped her at knife point. Cindy had dozens of cuts on her arms and legs that looked like they'd been made with a scalpel or a similar sharp instrument. Cindy's account of what had happened was never investigated further. Cindy believed that there was a good chance Agnes's arrival had scared away the perpetrators. Much later, she would confess that one of the men had held a knife to her throat, threatening the lives of her family members 
if she said anything. This incident marked the first physical threat on Cindy's life. Little did she know, the first attack was only the beginning. Throughout 1983, terrifying calls and letters continued, despite Cindy moving to different locations. According to her sister Melanie, in October of 1983, Cindy's garden was completely vandalized, and several dead cats had been scattered around her yard. One of the cats had a note attached with the warning, You're next. A few weeks later, Cindy received dead yellow flowers in the mail, accompanied by a card with the question, Are you ready to die? It had all become too much for Cindy, and she decided to hire a private investigator to get to the bottom of it. Ozzy Caban, a former Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer who ran his own security business. From the beginning, Ozzy felt Cindy was withholding something. He felt Cindy had a good idea who was behind the harassment, but didn't want to implicate the person for an unknown reason. After hearing Cindy's phone line had been cut several times, Ozzy installed motion sensor lights around the perimeter of her home. He also gave her a two-way radio. She was instructed to keep it on at all times, so Ozzy could hear if something went awry. On the night of January 30th, 1984, Ozzy heard odd noises coming from the two-way radio. Immediately, he rushed to Cindy's house to check on her. When he arrived, he knocked on the door, but there was no answer. When the P.I. walked around the side of the house and peered in the nearest window, he saw Cindy lying unconscious on the floor. As Cindy lay motionless, face down on the floor, Ozzy called 911. After breaking down the door, a paring knife had been driven through her left hand, and an attached note read, Now you must die. Within minutes, emergency personnel arrived, managing to revive Cindy briefly before rushing her to the nearest hospital. When questioned by investigators, all Cindy could remember was feeling a needle being inserted in her arm. Police failed to take fingerprints in her home or even on the knife because they believed the attack had been staged. But Cindy's hired PI thought it was impossible for Cindy to inject herself given the angle of the injection site. In his mind, there had definitely been an attacker. Cindy was put through a series of polygraphs, but it was ultimately determined she was too traumatized to get an accurate result. Cindy endured nightmares and horrific flashbacks, reliving the trauma over and over again. And the disturbing calls continued, this time picking up in frequency. Police monitored her phone line, but the calls were too short to trace. Cindy's home was placed under 24-hour police surveillance several times following the incident. Every time, the calls and notes would stop coming in. Investigators used this as supporting evidence to back up their suspicions. Everything was staged by Cindy herself. The absence of any threats under surveillance cast renewed doubt on Cindy's claims. 
Ozzy continued to believe his client had an attacker or multiple attackers. In his opinion, whoever was stalking Cindy could have been with law enforcement. Maybe the offender had knowledge of police movements. If that were the case, of course they wouldn't continue their threatening behavior with police presence. There was minimal investigation on Cindy's former fling, Officer Peter McBride. Roy Makepeace, Cindy's ex-husband, was questioned a few weeks later. After being interrogated for nearly six hours, Roy theorized there might be a link to the school where Cindy worked. Maybe a family with ties to organized crime was angered by the treatment of one of their children. In June of 1984, the harassing calls continued, along with property damage. Cindy had also received a sexually explicit birthday card, and her dog Heidi was found beaten and tied to the leg of the kitchen table. For several months in autumn, all was quiet. In January of 1985, Cindy went through a hypnosis session. During that session, she revealed an astounding secret to the two detectives. During a 1981 yacht trip with Roy, he murdered and dismembered a young couple. But police couldn't find any evidence of the crime, and Cindy's sister Melanie, who was also on the trip, hadn't recalled anything unusual. After being hypnotized, Cindy called Roy to confront him about the allegedly resurfaced memories. In a call recorded by police, Roy told Cindy she was either insane or experiencing some sort of revenge fantasy. Regardless, Vancouver investigators put several homes under 24-hour surveillance. Among them were the homes of Roy Makepeace, Cindy James, and two unnamed suspects. Fourteen officers took shifts during a seven-day stakeout, but nothing suspicious transpired at any of the residences, so the operation was terminated. In June of 1985, Cindy suffered a mental breakdown. After being hospitalized for a week, she was released on the condition that she would stay with family. Instead, she went home alone and was greeted by more disturbing letters and calls. At one point, she was even mailed a package of rancid meat. It was around this time, Cindy learned her contract hadn't been renewed at Bellum House due to her mental state. She was devastated. On December 11, 1985, Cindy was attacked and left for dead. Police found her in a ditch just six miles from her new home. She was suffering from hypothermia, wearing only men's work boots and gloves. The injuries from that attack included a black eye, as well as bruises and cuts all over her body, and a black nylon stocking was tied around her neck once again. She was found in a state of semi-consciousness and disoriented by her surroundings. She told police on the scene she had no memory of what had happened or how she got there. In an effort to evade her attacker, Cindy moved yet again, this time to Richmond, a mid-sized city on Canada's Pacific coast. Interestingly, also the same city, Cindy's former boyfriend had traced one of the calls to. Sitting on the outskirts of Vancouver, 
It's there Cindy began working at Richmond Hospital, hoping to start a new life for herself. In an attempt to hide her identity, Cindy changed her last name from Makepeace to James and also had her car painted. After several more break-in attempts, Cindy was too terrified to be left alone for long and asked her friend Agnes and her husband Tom to stay with her overnight at times. On April 15, 1986, some time after midnight, Agnes and Tom were awakened by a knock at their bedroom door. Tom answered to find Cindy appearing distressed. She anxiously told her friends she had heard a sound coming from downstairs. As the three of them headed down to investigate, they realized the basement was in flames. When Agnes attempted to dial 911, she couldn't because the phone line had been cut. When Tom ran outside to seek help, he noticed a man standing in Cindy's yard and he asked him to call 911, but the man ran down the street without saying a word. After police arrived on the scene, they checked the home for any signs of forced entry, but found none. There were no broken windows, no doors had been kicked in. Police declared it as an arson. They concluded the fire must have been started by someone who was already inside the house. According to Cindy's sister, Melanie, Cindy had been filled with so much guilt for putting her friends' lives in jeopardy, she began starving herself. Cindy's own doctor, psychotherapist Dr. Alan Connolly, saw the toll years of harassment and physical peril had on his patient. He feared the anxiety would drive her to additional suicide attempts, or at the very least, a full mental breakdown. So he advised Cindy to commit herself to inpatient psychiatric care. After committing herself, Cindy was hospitalized for 10 weeks. While under his care, Dr. Connolly noted the hardest thing for Cindy was always having doubt cast on her claims. Outside of her friends and family and the private investigator she hired, no one believed her. In journals Melanie Hack would later retrieve, Cindy wrote about how the whole experience left her feeling, quote, so alone, no one in the universe will ever understand. Like I somehow live on a different planet from everyone else. Like I'm existing alongside them, but always separate. She also wrote, I still feel suicide is my best option in an unbearable situation. And as soon as I get out of here, I will carry out my plan. Melanie had only gotten bits and pieces of information about the attacks over the years. But in July of 1986, after being released from the hospital, Cindy made a startling confession to her family. She told them she'd withheld information from them all this time because her attacker had threatened to kill her family. Breaking her silence with her family gave Cindy the courage to do the same with police. This time, when she spoke with officers, she told them she believed she knew who her attacker was. Her ex-husband, Roy Makepeace. In response, investigators encouraged Cindy to phone her ex and confront him while they recorded the conversation. Are you denying it? Oh my God, 
always have denied it. I have absolutely nothing whatever to do with it. To bolster his innocence, Roy turned over answering machine tapes that included the same threatening voicemails left on Cindy's answering machine. In addition, he told police Cindy had split personalities, despite never being diagnosed. With police doubting her credibility and the harassment showing no signs of ending, Cindy thought of purchasing a gun. She told Ozzy Caban of her intention to go after her attacker herself. He cautioned that a gun might create a danger to herself and others, as she had no firearms training. To dissuade her, Ozzy instead gave her a panic button for emergencies. It connected to a silent alarm, which would alert Caban employees if she was ever in trouble. On October 26, 1988, Cindy pressed the panic button to call for help. When police found her, Cindy was unconscious in her car, partially nude, with her legs dangling out of the driver's side door, her arms tied behind her back, along with a black nylon stocking tied around her neck. She had slipped into a coma, but somehow survived. On May 25, 1989, Cindy was beginning a five-day break from work. She started her day by getting a makeover at a local mall. At around 4 p.m., she stopped into Richmond General Hospital to pick up her paycheck. For the rest of the afternoon and into the evening, Cindy ran errands at the Blundell Shopping Center. She purchased groceries and a gift for her friend's son, who had an upcoming birthday party. She also deposited her paycheck at the Bank of Montreal in the shopping center. What happened next is anyone's guess. Cindy's friends, Agnes and Tom Woodcock, had plans to play bridge at Cindy's house that night. At 10 p.m., they pulled up to her driveway and tooted their car horn. Usually, that was enough to alert Cindy of their arrival, and she'd come out to greet them. But this time, she didn't come out and Cindy's car wasn't in the driveway. The Woodcocks planned to head home and call the police. On the way, they decided to swing by Blundell Center to see if there was any sign of Cindy. And there was. Just outside Cindy's bank, in a mostly abandoned parking lot, they spotted Cindy's blue 1981 Chevrolet Citation. But no Cindy. That's when they decided to drive directly to the Richmond RCMP station to report their concerns. In the weeks leading up to her disappearance, Cindy wrote a letter to her sister about a series of break-ins. She sounded hopeful about a friend installing motion sensors in her backyard, which would give her time to contact police and catch her attacker. Six years and seven months after the first harassing phone call, Cindy James was reported missing. The following day, an extensive search began. RCMP knocked on the doors of residents who lived close to the shopping mall where Cindy's car had been found. Aerial photos were taken of the mall, and a hovercraft from the Canadian Coast Guard patrolled the Richmond shoreline. 
Investigators even checked the Vancouver airport and questioned local cab companies to make sure Cindy hadn't stealthily left town. Inside the mall, police spoke to sales clerks and store owners, asking if anyone had seen Cindy, but no one had. Before moving Cindy's car into police custody, her bank card was found laying on the pavement beneath it. Later, when the exterior and interior were examined for possible evidence, blood was found on the outside of the driver's side door. Inside, they found groceries distributed on the passenger seat. Oddly enough, none of the food was perishable. On the back seat were two blue Sears bags, one with wrapping paper and the other with a croquet set, obviously the gift for Cindy's friend's son. When police questioned Roy Makepeace, he had a solid alibi for May 25th that could be corroborated by a female friend who was with him. Officers who went to Roy's residence said he seemed anxious and overly suspicious about who to trust. On June 8th, 1989, two weeks after Cindy James had been reported missing, she was found. A city employee spotted her body in the front yard of an abandoned house. Although the house was located in a high-traffic area with lots of pedestrian traffic, her body was obstructed by overgrown grass. There, she was discovered lying on her side, fully dressed, with one shoe missing. Both her hands and feet were tied behind her back, with the signature black stocking tied around her neck. Her only visible wound was an injection mark on her arm, but no needles were found at the scene. On a fuel tank by the side of the house, someone had spray-painted the words, Some bitch died here. And when investigators searched inside the home, they found the word devil spray-painted on one of the walls. Cindy James was a nurse who lived in Richmond. Her body was found in a vacant lot there two weeks after her family reported her missing. For a long time, Cindy James had been terrified. She was convinced that someone was out to get her, and she told police that many times. In fact, in the seven years leading up to her death, she filed 90 complaints with the Richmond and Vancouver police. A Vancouver coroner declared Cindy's death the result of an unknown event. But Royal Canadian Mounted Police believed it was either an accident or a suicide. This was due to Cindy's fragile mental state and the findings of the toxicology report. Toxicology revealed the presence of morphine and a variety of sedatives in her system. The amount of morphine was 10 times the lethal dose. Investigators theorized Cindy had injected herself elsewhere and discarded the needle, then walked to the site where she was found, and then tied her own hands and feet. But the P.I. Cindy hired, Ozzy Caban, had a different theory. After examining Cindy's body a day after the autopsy, he noticed blotching on her left side, which suggested post-mortem lividity or blood settling in the body. Something that would have occurred quickly, unless the body had been stored somewhere cold. Because Cindy had been found laying on her right side, 
but the blotching was seen on her left side. That could have been a sign that Cindy's body had been moved after she was murdered. The fact that no one had seen or smelled her body after she'd been supposedly lying there for two weeks supported his theory. However, many armchair detectives and police officers have disagreed, continuing to support the notion that Cindy's murder or death had been staged. Those who counter this theory say it would have been impossible for Cindy to tie herself up after injecting herself. But Vancouver Sun reporter Neil Hall negates the argument by stating, the morphine wouldn't have taken effect for, say, 15 minutes to half an hour. The knot specialists who came in and recreated the same type of knots and the way she was tied up took minutes. Cindy's funeral was held a few days after her autopsy, at which police planted a hidden camera. One detail particularly noteworthy was that Cindy's ex-husband, Roy Makepeace, did not attend. And coincidentally, her body was found on his birthday. Throughout the investigation, the major crime squad consulted forensic psychiatrist Dr. Tony Marcus, the doctor who treated Cindy in July of 1984 and diagnosed her with border personality disorder. He told investigators, Cindy engaged in a play in her private life and was absorbed in her own plot. To those who believed the reoccurring harassment was the result of delusions, it was an open and shut case. Cindy was a troubled woman seeking attention. On July 12, 1989, after a four-week probe, investigators ultimately declared there was no evidence of foul play in the death of Cindy James. On February 13, 1981, the true crime TV show Unsolved Mysteries covered Cindy's case. Cindy's father, Otto Hack, felt the investigation into his daughter's death was inadequate, that police didn't investigate the possibility of homicide, but instead zeroed in on trying to prove she committed suicide. The British Columbia Coroner's Office called a public inquest. The date it was scheduled to be held changed three times. In February of 1990, the longest, most expensive inquest in British Columbia history began, lasting 40 days, with 84 people testifying. During the inquest, detectives reported responding to close to 100 reports of harassment or physical attacks costing police an estimated $1.5 million. One after another, detectives outlined details of the case that just didn't add up. One of them was the night Cindy had a knife plunged through her hand. One of the responding detectives testified that in his 10 years as an officer, he'd never seen an assailant attempt to clean up a crime scene. Another detective testified about the night Cindy's basement was ablaze and how he believed she set fire to it. The reason? The only window an intruder could have used had cobwebs and dust still intact on the windowsill. On top of these unusual occurrences, Cindy's mental health was on the forefront of every doubt-fueled testimony. 
Dr. Tony Marcus testified, though there was inconclusive evidence whether she was murdered or had committed suicide, he was certain the terror Cindy experienced was very real. In his testimony, he stated that this woman was under siege from whatever source, inside or out. Another interesting part of the inquest involved the messages left on Cindy's answering machine. The tape with the growling voice warning Cindy had been sent to an analyst in Syracuse, New York, but they were unable to determine if the voice on both recordings were Cindy's. At the conclusion of the inquest, there was still no closure. In late May of 1990, the jury concluded Cindy James died as a result of an unknown event. Nothing new had been presented during the inquest to explain her death. To this day, Cindy's cause of death remains a mystery. In 2006, Melanie Hack, Cindy's younger sister, broke her silence and started a blog, and three years later, published a book titled, Who Killed My Sister? My Friend. In the book, Melanie describes how she feels there are still so many unanswered questions about what happened to her sister. Sadly, both of Cindy's parents passed away without ever feeling like they had gotten any answers. In a January 6, 1991 article in the Gazette, Cindy's father spoke about how much his daughter meant to him, saying, to us, she was love and beauty personified. In her book, Melanie wrote, she wants the story of her sister, the incredible mystery that was her life, shared. Though Cindy is gone, she gives her sister a sense of purpose and serves as a vessel for the truth about what really happened to Cindy. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au 
slash G-E. Some are standing at my door. I hope they can't get in, cause I 